John chapter 13 this evening is in our view as it was a few weeks back. We began a series, we return to it. You've already heard some stories from my wife last week about what was going on and the intensity of what uh, ground zero, as they call it, was like. And um, there is a perimeter around the area of the World Trade Center that's very difficult to get through for obvious reasons. There's uh, police and FBI, firefighters, military. And uh, on the outside perimeter are several organizations that have set things up to help people who are working. There's helmets, there's uh, breathing masks because of the dust. There's food set up for people who would like something to eat for free. And uh, one, one particular station caught my eye as I was leaving one day, that area called Ground Zero. And it was several basins set up for washing your hands, which we desperately needed to do. But there was also a couple basins set up to wash the boots of the workers. The dust inside the, the perimeter is uh, contaminated. There's pulverized cement, broken sewage, human debris. And so as you come out, this group told you to put your boots inside the pan and they would scrub it. And as I put my boots in there and the, there was a guy bending over to wash the boots, scrubbing them off with disinfectant and water, I said, you know, you remind me of Jesus. He said, what? I said, yeah, there's a story in the gospel, John chapter 13, where Jesus stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. He had a big smile. He goes, oh yeah, I remember that part. Let's refresh our memory. It was the last night Jesus would spend alone before the crucifixion with his twelve. They were gathered in an upper room. It was a solemn occasion. It was the Passover feast. The shadow of the cross was looming nearby. Jesus wants to prepare these men for their future. They don't know what's going to happen. Jesus does. And so this is like a four-chapter farewell message to the twelve disciples. But instead of entering into the moment, you might say, we know what they were doing, don't we? They were arguing, infighting, as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You know, so often I find in the Gospels, Jesus had things to tell his disciples, but they were so preoccupied. They just didn't get it. And so even though he told them that he would be betrayed and would be crucified, that just didn't seem to register. And one of the reasons is they were arguing. I brought a book with me tonight that is tattered, as you can see, especially in the front rows. It's called Rabboni. It's written by Philip Keller, who tells the story beautifully. Let me read it to you. It was a festive scene. Good-natured banter and wit flowed back and forth among the young companions. They were close-knit. Suddenly, a spark of contention was ignited among them. They began to quarrel and to argue as should, who should be the most prominent of place. Tempers began to flare, sharp remarks were made, and in short order, hostility mounted amongst them. Angry looks crisscrossed the room. Scowls creased their faces, and the atmosphere became electric with animosity. A look of anguish and despair stole across the master's face. Always, 
always God has to cope with the resurgence of our rotten old human nature. And here, despite all of his teaching and example, his men were at one another's throat again. In a gesture of overwhelming generosity and goodwill, he swept off his tunic and mantle. With a simple swish, he wrapped a towel around himself. Then taking up a basin of water, he began to go from man to man. Kneeling on the floor before each prone figure, he gently washed their rough, dusty feet and then dried them with his towel. This simple, humble action of washing his friend's feet embarrassed them deeply. It was probably the most humiliating lesson they had ever learned. Let him that would be greatest among you be your servant, he said. It was one thing to hear those words. It was another to see them enacted. Here was the master, their Lord, the Messiah, God's anointed one, the king of glory, cleaning dust and dirt and caked mud from their calloused, rough feet. A quiet hush fell over the room. The angry young spirits were still. The hot flaming words ended. The flashing eyes fell to the bowed form of their master kneeling before them. Embarrassed, flushed cheeks replaced fierce looks and cutting glances that shot across the room. It was one of the most powerful sermons Jesus ever preached. It was a message almost without words, yet replete and pregnant with pathos. Do this to one another. Peter, as always, protested. Probably he was one who had participated in the dispute earlier in the evening. He was never short on words nor slow to act. He must have been a painful person to live with. No, the big burly fisherman objected. You don't wash my feet. He waved his hands excitedly and drew up his big gnarled feet beneath him. Jesus looked at him in commingled affection and reproach. If you don't allow me to do this, then you really have no part in my plans. Peter really didn't understand. How could he? First flushed with anger, then embarrassed, excited, and now rebuked sternly, he was overwhelmed with a wave upon wave of emotion flooding over him. At best, he was a highly charged emotional man. He lived and moved under the impulse of Peter's emotions. Not yet had he come under Christ's control. What Jesus was doing, as we saw last time we were in this chapter, is demonstrating in microcosm form the love of God, pouring himself out, coming to this earth. Now, admit it. The love of God is difficult for you to grasp. It really is. I think that's why Peter objected. It was just hard for him to believe that the Messiah, God's holy anointed one, would do this. No, he protested. I find it honestly difficult to understand God's love. I get asked the question, why does God love you? I say, I have no clue. But you know what? I'm not going to fight it. There's a great old hymn called The Love of God that says, Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made 
Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could that scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Here was a display of the love of God. For this purpose, a crisis was coming. The disciples would face it. Jesus knew it. Soon Jesus would be dead. They would be disillusioned. Soon Jesus would rise, but then ascend into heaven. They would see him no more. To make matters worse, the early church, the disciples and all, would be persecuted incredibly. Most of them would lose their jobs. They would be poor, all because of their faith in Christ. So this wasn't the time to argue. This was the time to love and to serve one another. Interesting note, follow my thinking. The early church rose to the occasion. When there was a real crisis, the persecution, the loss of employment, the hardship, the depression, the early church loved and served one another. They even sold their possessions and gave the money to each other. Servanthood marked them. However... When life began to normalize again, when the crisis seemed to pass a little bit, they went right back to the human nature of arguing, fighting, and dividing. I think you see where I'm going with this. Our nation is in a crisis. A crisis of unparalleled proportions, and we have seen an incredible resurgence of unity, camaraderie, and instant, sudden spirituality. Those are wonderful things. When I was in New York, we had people cheering us as we left the section called Ground Zero. I had people in New York just come up and say, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> now, I've been there many times. I have not experienced that, quite honestly. <laughs> All that is wonderful, but my question is, when, when the crisis kind of goes back a little bit and we normalize as a nation... What will we be like then? Well, for, for the Christian church, servanthood shouldn't be crisis-oriented. It's a constant. It's the place where people should always be able to come and be loved, cared for, and served. Somebody once said, very appropriately, humility isn't thinking meanly about yourself. Humility is simply not thinking of yourself at all. Jesus demonstrates that. He's thinking of others. Our paragraph begins in verse 6 tonight. It begins with an objection. The objection is followed by an illustration. The illustration is followed by an explanation. It says, Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Ah, oh, Peter. The Passover followed a, a carefully regimented plan called the Seder, an order of service. 
It is where they reclined on pillows. Because after all, they were once slaves. They had to stand at attention. Now as free men, they could recline. And they would lay back with one hand. They could grab anything on the table and they could eat. Now, Leonardo da Vinci, though he's a great artist, has done us an immense disservice in his painting of The Last Supper. Because you get the idea that they're all sitting in chairs facing the camera. You notice that? (laughs) That's not how it was originally. They were lying with their feet behind them. And Jesus got up and he took a basin and a towel and he, you might say, worked the outer perimeter, going from disciple to disciple, washing the feet, all of them stunned in silence. Then he comes to Peter and there is an objection. Let let me say that Jesus never selected ready-made leaders. Have you noticed that? These were not seminary graduates. They never read Stephen Covey's book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. He never did any of that. These were, well, they they were like do-it-yourself kits, these disciples. (laughs) This was raw material. And they were arguing, and now Peter is objecting. One thing I have noticed about Peter, he always tried to be very spiritual, without a lot of success. You know, if we follow him through the Gospels, for instance, in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says, I am going to Jerusalem, I am going to be arrested, they are going to beat me, I am going to die, but I'm going to rise. Peter jumps in and he says, Never will we let this happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. How about the time when Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on that mountain? And they were talking to one another. And what does Peter do? He interrupts. And listen how profound his words are. He walks up to Jesus who's talking with these two characters. And he says, Lord, it is good that we are here. Wow. Thank you, Peter. That was very profound. And then he continues, I tell you what, if you like, we'll build three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now God the Father has to interrupt Peter and say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. As if to look at Jesus and say, where did you get this guy? (laughs) And then we follow him into the Garden of Gethsemane where he pulls out a sword to defend God. Aiming for the head, missing, good thing he was a fisherman, got an ear, Jesus heals the ear, and now here. Now listen to his words. Are you watching my feet? Keen eye for the obvious, right? Uh, Yeah, I am. Now, I think that Peter was watching Jesus go from disciple to disciple, and he was just thinking, wait till he comes to me. You know, these guys, they're just so lame. They can't figure, they they shouldn't let this happen. So, watch this. Lord, you will never wash my feet. In fact, it's a very strong double negative in the Greek language that would be best translated, you shall by no means wash my feet, no, never. Oh, he meant it. Now, you might read this and say, well, he was just being humble. Listen, you don't disobey God and call that humility. 
You don't say no to the Lord and say, I'm being humble. It doesn't work that way. This is a pattern with Peter. Just like later on in the book of Acts, you remember the story that sheet was let down from heaven with all of those unkosher things on it. And the Lord says, Peter, get up, kill them and eat them. And he says, no way, Lord. (laughs) Now, I don't know, but I don't think you can say that. No, Lord. If he's your Lord, that means you say yes when he tells you to do something. Otherwise, he's not your Lord. Oh, this was a pattern with Peter. Not so, Lord. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Remember, humility isn't thinking meanly about yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself. But you see, this was all about Peter because Peter figured, it's going to sound so spiritual. I'm not going to let the Messiah wash my feet. Now, he goes from from objection to overreaction in the very next verse. Uh, Jesus says, you'll have no part with me. And Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head and my hands. So he sticks his big fisherman callous feet out there, his gnarly hands, and just, you know, give me the works, Lord. Now bless his heart. Really. You know, it's like he's saying, hey, if, if this means fellowship with you, then I'll do whatever it takes. And I love this about Peter. You know, we do berate Peter. It's easy to take pot shots at him, as you heard, I just did it. I think there's going to be a long line of preachers in heaven apologizing to Peter, and I'm going to be in that line. This is such a wonderful uh, view into his character. If it requires this to have communion and fellowship, Lord, just, just give me a whole bath. But the reason Peter, I believe, had a hard time accepting Jesus serving him is because Peter had a hard time serving others. He wasn't thinking about serving others. He was arguing with others. So when Jesus comes to serve him, he has a difficult time with it. Somebody once said, walk tall, but never forget to stoop. Jesus stooped. Peter had a hard time with that. And you know, people today have a hard time with humility. Oh yes, even Christians. There was an ad in Psychology Today that I think sort of sums up our culture in general for the most part. The advertisement said, I love me. I am not conceited. I'm just a good friend to myself. And I like to do whatever makes me feel good. I'm surprised it didn't say signed Judas on there. Or even signed Peter or signed anybody else. It's so typical. So the objection is now met by an illustration. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But he is completely clean, and you are clean. But not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. Jesus, in that sentence, is giving an illustration what he is doing, what he means by it. Let let me give you the background once again to refresh your memory. A guest going to dinner in those days would, before he left the house, take a bath, wash his whole body, put his sandals on, walk down the street, get dust or mud on the feet, so by the time he got to the host's home, his feet were dirty. 
Easy, no problem. There was a basin of water at the door of most Israeli homes and a servant who lived within who would take the sandals off the guest's feet, put the feet inside the basin, wash the feet, and he'd be ready for supper. That's how it generally worked. You don't need to take another bath after walking down the street. You'd never have a guest walk into the host home and say, listen, I just walked here from my house. My feet are dirty. Can I use your shower? That's ridiculous. You only wash your feet. There's two words that Jesus used in our passage. I want you to notice them. He says, he who is bathed. That's the first word. Luo is the Greek. It means to take an entire bath for your whole body. Then he says, needs only to wash. Nipto, different word. It means to not wash the whole body, but just a portion of the body. Once you've taken an entire body bath, you only need to wash your feet. Now, this is an illustration. Jesus isn't referring to physical dirt, obviously, because he draws out a spiritual analogy. He's speaking of spiritual filth that we come in contact with on a daily basis. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when you come to Jesus Christ, when you're born again, when you give your life to Him, you're bathed all over. However, you then walk through this world. It's easy to get defiled. You hear certain things, see certain things, say certain things, react to things, and a certain defilement takes over. Your sins have been washed away when you came to Christ. As it says in Hebrews 10, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. But you have dirty feet, so to speak. Put it this way. All Christians have union with Christ, but not all Christians have communion with Christ. And and because of that daily defilement, there's an aspect of our prayer life that is is important, paramount, but too often missing among Christians. It's called confession of our sins. John writes these words, not to the heathen, not to the unbeliever, but to the Christian. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we've come to Christ, we're bathed all over, But we blow it on a daily basis and we need a foot washing. We need to be cleansed. We need to confess our sins because unconfessed sin will hinder your walk with the Lord. As Jesus says to Peter, you will have no part with me. In other words, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't do this and get what I'm saying spiritually, Peter, there's no communion with me. A disciple of Jesus Christ will keep short accounts with God. Won't let things build up over time, but keep short accounts. Examine yourself daily. Confess your sins regularly. Now, if you have a tough time remembering what you've done, just ask your wife or your husband or anybody who has seen you in the last 24 hours. Or better yet, ask God to reveal it to you. That's what David did. In Psalm 139, David prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So confession of our sin, getting that foot washed, is necessary for ongoing communion with the Lord because sin builds up a barrier between us and God. 
Listen to what God said through Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 59, The Lord is not too weak to save you, and He is not becoming deaf. He can hear you when you call, but there is a problem. Your sins have cut you off from God. Because of your sin, He has turned away, and He will not listen anymore. So you see, cleansing from sin isn't, Well, I already gave my life to Christ several years ago. Oh, and you've been perfect since then? I doubt it. And so we say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I confess this to you. Help me with this. That's the foot washing. Max Lucado said, Give a man religion without reminding him of his filth, and the result will be arrogance in a three-piece suit. And churches are filled with that, aren't they? I'm a churchgoer. Look at the way I've dressed. Look at the Bible that I carry. I'm fine. We need our feet washed. That's the analogy. Something else. Go back to verse 2. It says, Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then now, verse 11 in our text. For he, that's Jesus, knew who would betray him. That's Judas. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. He speaks of Judas. Think for a moment about Judas. Think of all that Judas saw and heard for those three and a half years that he followed Jesus. He heard the great teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. He was there. The Olivet Discourse. He was there. Part of this discourse. He was there for it. The the parable of the the prodigal son coming back. He heard it all. He heard the stories uh, that Jesus told about hypocrites, the the tares sown among the wheat. He heard it. In Matthew 23, the disciples, including Judas, heard Jesus say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Outwardly you look great, but inwardly you're corrupt. Judas heard those words. And, And think of what Judas saw. Jesus walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, raising people from the dead. It's amazing. Yet, the name Judas Iscariot has become synonymous with treachery, deceit. The person who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But you know what? I think if you could have met Peter, you'd be surprised. I'm sorry, Judas. You'd be surprised at Peter too, but if you were to meet Judas... I bet you think, that's Judas? I mean, he seems so religious, so upright, so nice. Listen, none of the disciples had any idea that Judas was the betrayer until the very end. He, he was the guy that kept the money bag. He was the treasurer for the disciples. In fact, it almost sounded like he had more care about the poor than the other disciples Just a couple days before this, they had been at Bethany, and Mary, sister of Lazarus, washes Jesus' feet and anoints them with very expensive ointment. And Judas pipes up, and he says, you know, that ointment could have been sold for a year's wage, and the money could be given to the poor. And I bet the other disciples said, yeah, he's right. That's so spiritual, Judah, we didn't think of that. But John, who wrote the gospel, 
He wrote it after he was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed. said, Judas didn't say this because he cared for the poor. Judas said this because Judas was a thief and he used to take money that was put in the money box from Jesus. Oh, he seemed so spiritual he heard it all. Judas was a hypocrite. Judas hadn't been washed all over. Hadn't had the spiritual bath. This is some sobering stuff. It's amazing how close a person can be to Jesus, so close to salvation, and yet lost forever. That's Judas. And he fooled everyone. Judas was just the first of many incredible actors in the church today. They talk the talk, they carry the Bible, they sing the hymns, and they say, God bless America. But do they really want God? Or just God's blessings? Francis Bacon once wrote, A bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint. It's the worst form of hypocrisy. Jesse James was like that. He murdered a man and then that day afterwards got baptized. Then on another day he shot a bank teller and joined a church choir and taught the others how to sing. And once he was asked about church, and he said, you know, I love Sundays. I love church. The only problem is I can't always make it. Well, why not? Because he was out robbing and killing. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. Listen, it doesn't help to get your feet washed until you've been bathed all over. And therein lies the problem of many churchgoers. They just want a part of their life cleaned up. Not the whole thing. I still want to hang on to all these cool little sins that I just love to dabble in. So just clean this little part, would you? For many people, God is a spare tire. You don't think about the spare tire until you have a flat. Oh, God! Remember the Gulf War? Gallup organization said that church attendance was highest that it had been in America for 25 years up to that point. Now, listen, I love people coming to church and calling on God, but you know what? We needed Him before the Gulf War. We needed God before this crisis in New York. We always need Him. We just are blind to that too often. bathed all over, and then cleansed. Finally, there is an explanation Jesus gives, and this follows to the end of our message tonight. Verse 12. So when he washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? I doubt they did. Now, (laughs) Peter was probably thinking, well, I I do. These guys, of course, they don't. But I I do. It's, It's likely they did not because they had been arguing many times before this night and during this night. You call me teacher and Lord. You say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, 
nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Two days before this very event, they're going up to Jerusalem. This is after the washing of Jesus' feet and the oil of spikenard in Bethany. They're now walking up to Jerusalem. In the company was the mother of James and John, Mrs. Zebedee. Mrs. Zebedee goes up to Jesus on behalf of her two boys and says, Lord, I have one small request, and that is, in the kingdom, can my boys sit on your right hand and on your left hand? Which caused the other disciples to get mad. You sent your mom to ask Jesus? (laughs) And so Jesus then instructs them. And he says, the rulers of the Gentiles exercise lordship and lord it over them, but it shall not be this way among you. Whoever would be greatest must serve, must be as the youngest, must be the servant of all. The world's question to you is, well, how many people work for you? The question the Lord would ask you is, how many people do you work for? Do you serve Part of the problem the disciples had is they took their cues from the world rather than from the Lord. Now Jesus tells them basically three reasons why. Here's the explanation. You saw what I've done in the midst of your objection. This is why you ought to serve. Number one, because I said so. I'm your Lord. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Verse 16, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. I'm your Lord. I'm your master. I'm the boss. And you know what? That's the bottom line. Well, why should we serve one another? Give me a good reason. Simply because Jesus said so. That's all the reason we need. We shouldn't require any other explanation or exegesis. He's the Lord. We shouldn't be like Peter and go, Oh no, Lord, no, wait a minute. Because if He's Lord, the answer is yes. And for so many of us, the problem begins right here. We call Him Lord, but we treat Him like a servant. Listen to some of us pray. How often do we ask God for something? And how often do we say, Lord, I'm reporting for duty. What are you asking of me? What do you want me to do? Calvin Miller said, If we were honest, sometimes our prayers would be more in line like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) And there's even part of a theology these days. You're you're to demand and command and claim and God will just do it for you. It's all at your disposal. No, He's the Lord. And you serve one another because the Lord gave the order. Second reason, because Jesus did it. He's the role model. He says, and notice it, I have given you, verse 15, an example that you should do as I have done. It simply means a model to be copied, a template to be followed. What you just saw me do, you do to them, to each other. Not that he was institutionalizing foot washing. The point is, I took the lowest 
role in this room. I became the servant to you, and I am the Lord. And I've given you now an example. You see, though I'm your master, and though I have every right to demand that you serve one another, what I've rather done is demonstrated to you. That's a true leader, by the way. A true leader is somebody who knows the way, who goes the way, and then who shows the way. He does it all. Jesus did that. Third reason. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed means happy. It's the same word in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I know what makes you happy. I know what will make you happy, says Jesus. And if you want to be happy, be humble. The humble man is the happy man. That's the road to happiness. Notice something here. The happiness comes not in knowing, but in doing. If you know these things, he didn't say you'll be happy if you, if you know them. If you know these things, I'll give you an A on your exam. That'll make you happy. If you know these things, you'll be happy if you do them. You know, even this passage tonight may stir us emotionally, may challenge us intellectually, but it will not bless us spiritually unless we do it, unless we act upon it. So often, uh, we know the truth for others, right? Oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. (laughs) It's human nature. Husbands know exactly how their wives ought to behave. Employees know exactly how their employers ought to treat them. But follow the sequence. You want satisfaction. You want happiness. It comes by being a servant, by being humble. One of the greatest needs in the church today is to get our feet washed in the spiritual sense, to help each other in our defilement. And if I'm reading this correctly, as Jesus uses this as a symbol of cleansing spiritually from the defilement of sin, and Christians on an ongoing basis struggle, don't we all, with something? And that's why the Bible says, confess your sins one to another. There's room for that. We may be saved and we may have our heads packed full of knowledge and doctrine, but we might have smelly feet. And that's where discipleship comes in. Hi, I want to help you grow from this to that level on a personal basis. And I'll tell you how you do it. If you want to do that, if you want to wash one another's feet, do it gently. Do it gently. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any fault, Paul wrote to the Galatians, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Do it gently. Some people wash feet. Watch the temperature of your water. Some people wash it with scalding hot water of criticism. Other people, it's ice cold water. They're cold and informal and just... And then others don't use any water. Just dry, cleaned feet, you know. Scrape off the dirt and the layers of skin along with it. 
You do it gently. Final thought, and I close. Living for others is going to be hard. You will run the risk of being used and being misunderstood. Awful lot of people want to use you. You'll get tired of giving yourself sometimes to people. That's part of servanthood. You'll be happy, but you'll be tired. Second, you will be misunderstood. The world does not understand people who serve and who give. And if you go as a missionary to a foreign country, people will say, what are you, an idiot? Giving up America to go to a dangerous country? Are you going to give up a career to do that? But in giving yourself to others, you will be so happy. My favorite kid's story, I used to read it to my son, is by Marjorie Williams. Here's a portion of it. The Velveteen Rabbit, it's called. The skin horse lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. Most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and to swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into any, anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is, what is real? asked the rabbit one day, when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that it happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You, you become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But those things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Father, many won't understand, but the idea of becoming a real, authentic servant who is fulfilled and glad by doing what the Master commands, oh, that attracts us. We're drawn to that, Lord. We want to serve. We want it to mark us. It has been marking us during these times of crisis. May it mark us when the crisis is past. When the events that have happened become a memory, remind us, Lord, that, that servanthood is not seasonal. 
It's constant. Lord, I pray you would uh, keep also in the forefront of our minds the reminder of, of Judas. So close, but so far. If we're teetering on that edge, Lord, I pray we'd come to you in repentance, in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.